Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. Reputation is basically your legacy. It's what you're known for. It's your contribution that you've done in the past. But respect is what are you doing now? Okay, are you a has-been or are you a player? That's Mark Cameron White. He's a lawyer and founding partner of the startup advisory firm White, Summers, Caffey & James. He's worked with companies like Tesla, Anki, Hotmail, Prezi, and more. Mark was one of the more than 65 people I interviewed in 2012 for my book, Startup Wealth, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Personal Financial Success and Long-Term Security. On today's show, I'll replay some of what Mark told me back in 2012 about the unpredictable roller coaster of wealth in Silicon Valley. And I'll explain what his advice means for you now as you plan out your financial journey. As a heads up, this interview was recorded in a dynamic working office and not a proper podcast studio. So you'll hear some background noises like typing or maybe the air conditioner. But Mark has a lot of smart insights on entrepreneurship and what success really means in his industry. So I hope you'll forgive the audio quality. Let's start at the obvious place, starting a company. Mark has worked with a lot of startups over the course of his career, helping them with everything from launch to sale. But he says there's no secret formula to picking the right idea. I don't care how experienced you are. You cannot tell how a company is going to do when it it is first formed. You cannot tell I've had companies that I just thought would not do anything, and they've done spectacularly well. Companies that ought to, on paper, do extremely well, have done nothing. Instead, you have to rely on a general sense for whether your idea is a good one. And the idea is important. Uh, You know, everyone says, well, it's the team, and they'll figure it out. And they kind of go from one thing to the next. And you never really uh, create a successful company without failing in one or two initiatives and then figuring out the third time around. That's true, but you've got to have some sense of where the opportunity is to get started and to get a team around you that's excited about the idea. So in the Valley, ideas are still really important. They really are. And it's not just a question of a good idea. There's also the problem of timing. One of Mark's longtime clients and friends is Martin Eberhard, who in 1995 co-founded the pioneering ebook company called Nuvo Media. They were 10 years in front of where we are today with the the iPad, you know, but they were the first guys. And, you know, so the company actually had to define what that whole industry was about, which is publication. It's not a device business. Nobody knew that at the time, quite honestly. So we were all involved in trying to sort of figure out how you digitize books, how you sell them, how what's the price point, what's the distribution channel, how do you how do you compete against brick and mortar stores? And today, brick-and-mortar stores don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Today, what Nuvo Media was doing makes perfect sense, selling books over the internet. But the reason you probably have never heard of the company is that it was sold for parts, or more accurately, patents, in 2000. Martin moved on and decided to pursue his passion in sports cars and address his fears about global warming. A few years later, he and Mark Tarpening founded a car company, called Tesla. In my book, Startup Wealth, I outlined a universal experience called the Entrepreneur's Wheel of Life. You can find a graphic of this at 
jlfwealth.com. Phase one is laying the foundation, and the harsh truth is the journey of most entrepreneurs ends there. I think in phase one, which is probably 80% of what goes on in the valley, it's everybody chasing a dream. Um, it's trying to figure out what the dream is and then building uh, a team of folks that are pursuing the same dream you are and then funding it. You got those three things and you know, then you've got staying power. So, so here's the issue. The issue is you never get it right first time around. So you need enough cash and time to get it right. But what if you do get it right? Then we move on to phase two, ramping up. Like Mark said, everybody in Silicon Valley is chasing a dream. But it's not enough to have a dream. You need to support your company long enough to let the world catch up. The point is you got to figure out how to bootstrap this thing um, until somebody is not only chasing the dream, it's getting other folks to buy into your dream. And uh, then it becomes their dream. That's what you want. You want a collective dream. You know, you want to kind of set the vision and, and a lot of people want to climb on top of that train. Funding a company using only your finances, aka bootstrapping, has a lot of advantages. You control everything and don't have to worry about an outside investor who wants a return on their capital faster than you can give it to them. But as you're ramping up, you need to keep yourself in check and be extra mindful of your finances. Going to a casino can be fun up to the point that you're staking more than you can afford to lose. Nobody tells you about their personal financial situation. Nobody does. I mean, what, they, what they'll tell me is, you know, I've got six months. Uh, and, and the way they'll say it is, you know, my wife is telling me I've got six months. They always say that, but it's really obviously that, you know, they agree. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so the ways to find the valley is I've got so much time, so much runway to make this thing work before either I get funded or I've got to basically figure out something else. Mark said most of his legal clients are reluctant to discuss what is happening at home. Well, first of all, I'm a lawyer, so why, why, why the heck would they talk to me about that stuff? And actually, most of my clients are my friends. Just spend a lot of time together, these guys. And um, we never talk about the uh, sort of what's going on, you know, at home. I mean, the only time it comes up is when somebody can't make a meeting, quite honestly, or they're, you know, it's spring break and they got to take off, and a lot of folks do. But the family dynamic just never comes up. It never does. It's amazing. They don't talk about their family finances. They don't talk about their family issues. It's reasonable that Mark's legal clients don't talk to him about their personal finances, but I hope someone is. If you have a personal financial advisor, you should receive ongoing guidance about reducing taxes and other personalized advice. The value of a professional advisor increases as time goes on. If the advisor already knows your situation, they'll be able to answer questions thoughtfully and specifically. That will save you a lot of time to focus on the things you love. They talk about timelines. That's it. And then you have to, you know, figure out, okay, so is it a timeline? Is it a real money issue? Uh, or is it just, you know, they want to do something uh, and get going because they're bored? And if it's not this startup, it's going to be something else? Or, or is it, does it just mean they transition to another way of doing the same thing? As an extreme example, he told me about one serial entrepreneur he's friends with who is in his mid-50s. He's in a house that's uh, way above his lifestyle, so he's living a life that he can't afford. He married a woman, uh, his second marriage, um, which, uh, you know, quite honestly, she, she has a lifestyle that he can't afford either. They have three children uh, from prior marriages, and 
they're putting their kids in schools uh, and giving them opportunities to play sports and travel and things which they can't afford either. So now this guy's in a hole. I mean, I, I'm kind of worried about him. And to make matters worse, the entrepreneur lied on his resume. He got booted out of one company because on his resume, he said he graduated uh, from an unnamed school and got an MBA where he didn't. Wow. Okay. Wow. And, and his explanation is, well, I was two months away from getting my degree. So he put it on the resume and it just came up and the venture guys found it. You know, mm. I mean, <laughs> so that's that's one mistake. Uh, uh, and, and then he has an, a, a, he has this tendency to think things are going to happen and they don't. Um, optimism. Uh, optimism, uh, but it's an unrealistic optimism. While that cautionary tale is not representative of what most entrepreneurs experience, the optimism is relatable, perhaps even mandatory for most. There are some people that are very cognizant of their financial situation, what they can and can't do. And so you've got this issue about runway and how much time they have. There are other people like this guy who are oblivious to it. You know, in a society that uh, forgives failure and actually looks at failure as being uh, something that you want so that people don't make the same mistake and have to kind of try things and figure out what works and doesn't work. And that's why failure is, is a good thing in the valley. That can be taken to an extreme where you, you sort of ignore everything that's probably important. All right. This guy should be getting a real job. He should not be you know, doing his next venture. But then you have to say, is he employable? That's another issue, right? Let's explore that optimism for a moment. Let's say one founder's dream becomes a collective dream. And whether through bootstrapping or outside financing, the company survives and thrives long enough to have a successful liquidity event, an acquisition, a merger, or an initial public offering. What happens then? That brings us to phase three, which I call realizing the dream, and kicks off a one to 24 month journey where the entrepreneur either stays at the company they created or moves on to something new. But either way, and especially if they decide to move on, this is only the close of one startup chapter and not the end of the entrepreneur's journey. The companies and the entrepreneurs that I work with generally don't go off into the sunset and find terrible activities and things to do that are not related to how they made their money in the first place. Everybody in the Valley wants to be in the game mm -hmm. forever. The way that uh, you build wealth in the Valley is you keep flipping companies. You come up with one idea after the next after the next. And the founders of these companies typically have a technical orientation and they're visionaries, all of them. And they're trying to figure out where the white space is and how to get back into the game. So for them, um, I think everything for them is phase one on your chart. Phase two and three don't matter. Phase two and three are transition stages hmm. to get back to stage one. So it's a, it's a circle, it's a cycle. Hmm. Wow. You know, and, and okay, you could say, well, that's not quite true because then you've got folks that are older and how many times can they start companies? Well, guys that are true entrepreneurs, they never stop. They just never stop. Most of the time, entrepreneurs will take some time off after a liquidity event. The hard part is figuring out exactly how much time that should be. And here's the tricky part, because your skill set becomes pretty antiquated really fast, you know, in this community. And I can't speak about Kansas, but here, if you're out of it for six months, you know, the world changes. It just does, mm. you know. Uh, you know, the folks that uh, are important change, the sectors that are emerging and becoming more interesting change. Relationships get stale. They really do. And, you know, so if you're out of it for, and I, I so I'm picking an arbitrary number, I'm saying six months, but I think that's real. Because I've had guys 
that have uh, not been active for a year. And it's harder for them to get back involved and kind of figure out what's going on. And, you know, you're not embraced uh, because you're kind of yesterday's history. I think the younger you are, the transition period is shorter. And the older you are, the transition period is longer. So if you're in your 50s, it's 24 months. If you're in your 30s, it's three to six months. If you're in your 40s, it's 12 months. I mean, I, you know, is it linear? No, obviously not. But I think broad parameters, probably yes. And, and the reason is it's not just business. It's also what are your family obligations? So that's two factors already. The risk of becoming obsolete in your own industry weighed against your obligations to your own family. But transitioning from one role to another is still more complicated than that. Let's go back to the story of Martin Eberhard, who co-founded Tesla in 2003. The following year, a South African-born entrepreneur named Elon Musk entered the picture with a $6.5 million investment. He led a Series A initial financing round and became the chairman of the board of directors. Eberhard stepped down as CEO in August 2007 and left Tesla in January 2008. Musk took over as CEO later that year. Mark told me that had a real impact on Martin Eberhard. Everybody has battle scars from their first start. Martin's are with Elon Musk and so, you know transition issues when, when he left that company. Um, everybody has their own stories. And uh, you know it takes a while for you to kind of uh, understand what happened, figure out whether it's an issue for you or not going forward, and how you want to address it in your next company. And, and how it marks you for life, quite honestly. Are you embittered or are you, uh, are, are you made stronger by this? Or uh, was it a learning experience that uh, it's just, you know, it's the road of life, right? And so every road has multiple chapters. And, and so this is just one, you know, so it, it does affect actually the way that you look at business going forward. I would say that in a very dramatic mm-hmm. way. He compared it to the way that even the most successful actors in Hollywood are always concerned about their next role and the next and the next. You know, they're making a gazillion dollars, right? They don't have to work, but, you know, their self-worth is defined by the role they're in in their next movie. Technology entrepreneurs are the same way. So what is the currency you have in life? You've got money, uh, you've got reputation, and then you've got respect. And reputation and respect are kind of sort of the same thing, but not quite. Um, Reputation is basically your legacy. It's what you're known for. It's your contribution that you've done in the past. But respect is what are you doing now? Okay, are you a has-been or are you a player? Okay, are you someone that is a power broker, either with with connections or knowledge or just your own competence, right? And involvement in the company, and you can make the difference between success or failure. Uh, and, and money gives you the freedom to, you know, to basically try and experiment with other things. And Mark made a point of reminding us that most tech entrepreneurs are not like Hollywood movie stars. They're more like the actors waiting tables at a Hollywood diner, trying and failing to break through and trying again over and over. You know, what happens to those guys? So I have a lot of those companies where, you know, we're talking about mid-level technology executives that are doing their first startup and they've got families. And so what's their staying power? And if they don't get this thing funded where it doesn't work out, you know, then they have to get a real job and and maybe the, the game's over for them. There's a lot of guys that, you know, so a lot of entrepreneurs are, they're kind of on the edge, they're on the bubble. And the question is, how, how long can they last? You know, they've got family responsibilities, their wives are getting nervous, and, you know, they want to give this thing a good shot, 
and they're living on a hope and a prayer, uh, but they've got limited time. And I can't tell you how many companies I've worked with, great ideas, good traction, you know, it's just about there and they ran out of money. And it's just a shame. It's just, it's a shame. It's a shame. Venture capital is such an influential, powerful force in Silicon Valley that we can take it for granted. In other countries, it's totally different. This issue always comes up because in Russia, and actually in Europe generally, entrepreneurs have to bootstrap the company themselves before anyone will take an interest in it. And you cannot fund an idea the way that you can do that over here. And I represent a lot of companies in Mexico as well. And these companies all have to sustain themselves. In Mexico, there is no venture capital. Zippo. You know, so then you come to the Silicon Valley and entrepreneurs here are expecting the venture guys to fund it. Uh, and, and bootstrapping for entrepreneurs here means, uh, you know, you probably put at risk maybe two to three hundred thousand dollars and that's it. Well, that's not a lot of money when you when you think these guys are sitting on 10 million plus. Right. So do they really believe in the idea or not? And so, so, so you get these offshore investors saying, well, Jesus, why am I putting up my money when these guys are getting a, a sluggish shares based on services and they didn't put any of their own money in? What's wrong with this story? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, that's just the way the valley works. And Mark says the difference is even starker in China and East Asia because the standard expectation is that entrepreneurs will personally guarantee an investment. Under standard mm-hmm. venture capital documents, the founders have to indemnify the investors for any misrepresentations um, or covenants made in the financing documents. Mm-hmm. So if they're wrong, the founders lose everything. They, they lose their investment, they lose, they put up their, their personal assets. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is unheard of here. It's just unheard of. Serial entrepreneurs are commonplace in the Valley, but no matter how dangerous it might feel here, the risks are far greater in other countries. You know, the idea of flipping companies is not common out there because you flip the company and people get burned, you're going to lose your house. (laughs) That doesn't happen in the Valley. Since phase one can last two to 40 years, it's wise to strategize your goals and if your resources will provide for them. Here's a brief checklist for that. First, prepare a personal cash flow projection for at least two to three years to understand the commitment you will make to the startup. Second, increase your knowledge via experts who teach classes, write books, and create podcasts. You're listening to this one, so you are already ahead of many other entrepreneurs. Third, divide your assets into buckets. A maintain bucket for what you need to maintain your lifestyle invested in a prudent way. A risk bucket to fund your startup or angel invest. And a give bucket for charitable giving to your favorite causes. But remember, never dip into the maintain bucket to fund your startup. Thank you again to Mark White for coming on Startup Wealth. You can find Mark and the firm he co-founded, White Summers Caffey and James, at white-summers.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. 
If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.